Good morning. Good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. What a joy it is to be with you. I'm so grateful to have this opportunity. And uh, Josh, thank you, brother, for sharing your pulpit with me. I'm so very grateful for Josh and the elders, the leadership of this church, and the faithful witness that this church is to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a special honor to be here with you. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and we will, we will begin. Father, thank you so much for this time. Father, we are grateful that we can come boldly to you now, boldly to your throne of grace, not in any confidence in ourselves, but in complete confidence in who Christ is and what he has wrought for us on the cross. We pray now that as we go to your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work. We pray that your word will find fertile soil and that it would bear good fruit, lasting fruit, to the glory of Christ our King. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 11. This is a message I have entitled, The Good Fruit of Godly Sorrow. The Good Fruit of of godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll begin reading in verse 5. The Apostle Paul writes, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, but only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you are made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made to have godly sorrow so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world brings about death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. May God bless the reading of his word. It's reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, so your ESVs may be a little bit different, but we'll be able to keep up here. Let me give you a little bit of background information to this passage so we'll kind of understand what was going on. The Apostle Paul was on his second missionary journey, and he came to the city of Corinth, a thoroughly pagan city, but he preached the gospel. A number of people were converted, and Paul just planted himself, started a church there, and spent about 18 months with this, these new believers, this fledgling church, discipling them, growing them up, maturing them in their faith in Christ. And when Paul felt like they had reached a level of spiritual maturity sufficient enough to carry things on in his absence, 
Then Paul left Corinth and went to other destinations to preach the gospel. Well, Paul may have left just a little bit too soon because it wasn't too long after his departure that things had gone awry in the, in the church of Corinth, that the wheels had basically come off. There was all kinds of sin and immorality in the church. And when Paul heard about this, he sat down and he wrote a letter to the Corinthians. This was actually technically his first letter to the Corinthians, but that letter is lost. We do not have a copy of that letter. So this was really, the, technically speaking, the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, but it has been lost to us. So he wrote that letter to address some of these issues. While Paul was in Ephesus, he received more reports of trouble from the church of Corinth, this time in the form of divisions among the brethren. And the Corinthians actually wrote a letter to the Apostle Paul. They wrote a letter to him asking him for clarifications on uh, various issues like meat sacrifice to idols, marriage, divorce, speaking in tongues, all these different issues. So when Paul got that letter from the Corinthians, then he sat down and he wrote another letter to the Corinthians, what we call the book of 1 Corinthians, and he sent that letter back to them. In the meantime, while all of this was going on, there were some self-appointed false apostles that had crept into the church. Now, aren't you glad that that is a thing of the past today, that we don't have to worry anymore about anybody today calling themselves an apostle who's really not an apostle? Glad that that's a thing of the past. Uh, wink, wink. So these self-appointed false apostles began to try to turn the church of Corinth against the Apostle Paul. And they began attacking Paul's character, saying things like, Paul's not a real apostle. Paul's not learned. Paul doesn't really care about you. No, don't follow Paul. Follow us. And so when Paul heard about this, he left Ephesus and went to Corinth. Now, when I say that, left Ephesus and went to Corinth, I wish I could throw up a, a map on the screen. That was no small journey. Going from Ephesus to Corinth, if you go by land around the Aegean Sea, that's about an 800-mile trip. And it's about an eight-day boat trip if you go straight across the Aegean Sea. No small endeavor. But Paul was so worried about what was going on in Corinth that he made that arduous trip. And so he finally arrived in Corinth. This was a trip that Paul referred to as the painful visit. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again or in pain again. This was a painful, sorrowful visit that the Apostle Paul made to the Corinthians. Why was it so painful and sorrowful? Because when he finally got there, he was rejected. He was mocked and rebuked to his face by these false apostles. And the Corinthians apparently did not stand up for the Apostle Paul. They went along with the deception of these false apostles. And by going along with them, the Corinthians had become complicit in the sin of these false apostles, right? 
Romans 14, 22, blessed is a man who is not condemned by what he approves. And so by going all along with their deception, the Corinthians became complicit in their sin. Paul was completely rejected. He was openly insulted. And Paul had to leave Corinth, and he made that long journey back to Ephesus, completely broken, brokenhearted. The Apostle Paul loved these people. He loved the Corinthians. They had been converted under his own preaching. He poured out himself for a full year and a half, discipling them, planning this church, growing this church, and they were his spiritual children in a sense. That's how he thought of them. And he made this long trip only to be rejected and mocked and insulted to his face, and he left. He was completely brokenhearted. And Paul left going back to Ephesus, hoping that the passage of time and the working of God's Holy Spirit would bring conviction and repentance to these Corinthians and that the Corinthians would come to realize that these false apostles were just that, false apostles. And false apostles do not truly care about the people that they deceive. In fact, Jude tells us that, does he not, in his letter. Jude says that false teachers, false apostles care only for themselves. And Paul prayed undoubtedly all the way back to Ephesus that God would bring that realization to them. So when Paul got back to Ephesus, then he wrote another letter, the severe letter that he mentions in chapter 2, verse 4. Paul writes, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears. So this was now the third letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, this tearful, sorrowful letter. This letter too, like the very first one he wrote, this letter too has been lost to us. We do not have a record of this letter. We don't have a copy of it. But whatever this letter was, it was a letter of rebuke. It was a painful letter. Paul wrote this letter to confront the Corinthians in their sin. It was painful it was harsh. We can put the pieces of the puzzle together by reading what we have in 2 Corinthians, that this was a letter of rebuke, a letter of confrontation to the Corinthians, confronting them in their sin. It was a painful letter. So Paul wrote this painful letter, this sorrowful letter. He could not bring himself to go back to Corinth, so he rolled this letter up and he gave it to Titus. And he said, Titus, take this to the church of Corinth and read this to them. And so Titus took the letter and he made the long, arduous journey all the way back to Corinth. And so Paul had no idea how the letter would be received. He had no idea how Titus himself would be received. But he gave this letter to Titus. And so Titus left Paul in Ephesus and made that long trip to Corinth. And so for context, background, that is where we pick up here. And let's look again at verse 5. We'll work, we will work our way through this text. Paul says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. Notice the plurality here of these afflictions, conflicts without, fears within. What kind of conflicts? Well, 
we get a little bit of a window into the kind of conflicts that the Apostle Paul faced. Look with me, turn over just a couple of pages to chapter 11. Look at verse 23. Paul says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, far more imprisonments and beatings without number in frequent danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Do the math on that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship in many sleepless nights, in starvation and thirst, often hungry in cold and without enough clothing. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. Other than that, everything was going great. <laughs> Conflicts without, fears within. And notice after he lists this long, long list of incredible phys physical hardship, he says, on top of all of that, I have the daily concern upon myself for the churches. What vexed him far more, what troubled him far more than the physical hardships was the concern he had for the churches. He loved these people. He loved them dearly, and he wanted to see them grow in Christ. Paul was worried. He was concerned. Well, isn't worry and concern sin? In a sense, yes, it is. The Bible tells us not to worry, and yet Paul worried. He had concern for the churches. Now think about this, dear friends. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the man who wrote Romans. Romans chapter 9, Ephesians chapter 1. These are towering testimonies to the sovereignty of God. And yet, he worried. And yet, he had concern for the churches. We see this in other places as well. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says... I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He wrote to the Thessalonians, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. The Apostle Paul, the author of roughly a third of the New Testament, who clearly had a high view of the sovereignty of God and yet... He himself had this concern. He worried for the churches. Now look at verse 6. Paul says, but God. But God. Two so very powerful words. Paul says, but God who comforts the depressed. He comforts the depressed. If ever a man had a reason to be depressed, it would have been the Apostle Paul because he had all of these hardships and on top of all of the physical hardships, the daily concern on him for all of the churches that his labors may have been in vain and they may have been led astray by temptation and sin. But God who comforts the depressed. If God be for us, who can be against us? Well, a lot can be against us. 
A lot can be against us, but dear one, dear brother, dear sister in Christ, nothing, no one, no thing can ever be against us as believers in such a way that it gains ultimate victory over us. No one, no thing, but God who comforts the depressed. Paul had the joy of preaching and starting a church only to see it come apart. Gross sin, his spiritual children turned against him. He sent Titus to Corinth and now he's got to worry about Titus too. Dear ones, it is not unusual for us as believers to go through times of mental anguish. Nothing unusual about that. Nothing strange about that. Martin Luther went through his valleys. Charles Spurgeon famously went through his valleys of depression. The Apostle Paul, even here, he calls it depression. The Apostle Paul was depressed. Conflicts without, fears within. All of us go through difficult times. Every single one of us. Job chapter 5 verse 7. Man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. Just as naturally as when you stoke a fire and the, the sparks fly upward. Just that naturally you and I will have trials, troubles, tribulation here in this fallen world. That's what a fallen world creates. So, here's the question. What's the solution? Where do we find our, com- our comfort? In a bottle? In a pill? No. In God. Paul says, but God who comforts the depressed. It is God who refreshed him. Flip over just a couple of pages the other way to chapter 1. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of some comfort. The God of all comfort, who comforts us in a few of our affliction, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There's a lot of comfort going on there. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, dear friends, calls God the God of all comfort. All comfort. So when we go through our times of mental anguish, maybe even depression, if you want to call it that, where is our comfort? Not in a bottle. Not in a pill. God. Do we believe this book or do we not? The Bible is not only inerrant, it is not only authoritative, it is also sufficient. It is everything that we need. Dear friends, you will not find comfort for your troubled mind in a bottle. You will not find it in a pill. You will find it in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. He comforted us by the coming of Titus, the coming of Titus, and look at verse 7, 
and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. What is Paul saying here? Titus finally got to Corinth, and he opened this letter, and he read this letter, this severe letter, the painful letter, the letter of rebuke. He read this letter to the church of Corinth, and do you know what? They repented. They repented. And so Titus left Corinth, and somehow in God's providence, Titus and and Paul met back up, and Titus got to Paul, and he brought with him this wonderful news. Paul, Paul, I read your letter, Paul. I read your letter to him, Paul. And Paul, they repented. They repented, Paul. And the text does not say this, but if you'll allow me just a little bit of sanctified speculation here, I can kind of see in my mind's eye, I just imagine that when Paul saw Titus, Titus saw Paul, they made eye contact, and Titus starts coming up to Paul. Paul, Paul, what, Titus? What? Paul, they repented. I read your letter to them, Paul. They repented. And in my sanctified speculation, I can just see Paul dropping to his knees in weeping tears of joy because he loved these people so much. And he wanted so much for them to come to a place of true, genuine repentance. And that is exactly what God did. That, my friends, is the working of the Holy Spirit of God. That's the kind of work that the Holy Spirit does, not angel feathers and gold dust. He brings people to a place of genuine repentance. This is the working of the Holy Spirit. Titus reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced in even more. And look at verse 8. I love verse 8. He says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, but only for a little while. Almost sounds schizophrenic, doesn't it? What's going on here? Paul says, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I did not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, but, but only for a little while. Have you ever had to write a letter or an email to a friend, to a family member who professes to be a, a Christian, but you see that this person is in some habitual sin? You see that this person is going a dangerous way spiritually and you're concerned for them. And so you write to them a letter. You write to them an email of rebuke, of correction, loving correction, but correction nonetheless. And you pour your heart out. You express your love. You express your concern. And you confront this person for whom you deeply care in their sin. And you finish it. And then what do you do? You hit sin and then what happens it's gone right and then after you click sin and it's gone then you then you're left with your own thoughts 
What did I just do? What have I done? Is this going to make things worse? Is it going to make the person mad? Is it going to just cause even more of a rift? What have I done? Have you ever been in that situation? That's where Paul found himself. He wrote this severe letter, this painful letter, this letter of rebuke, and he gave it to Titus. And once Titus was gone, once he was over the horizon, then Paul was left to his own thoughts and he thought, what have I done? But then what happened? His theology kicked in, right? His theology kicked in. He regretted it, but only for a little while. Then his theology kicked in, and then Paul realized, no, that was the right thing to do. That was confronting the Corinthians in their sin. This was the right thing to do. Dear friends, we never have to wonder if doing the right thing is the right thing to do. It always is. And the right thing to do when we see someone for whom we care and we know that they are in some habitual sin, we know that they are going the wrong way spiritually, we know that they're going into a dangerous place and going in a dangerous direction, the most loving thing we can do for that person is to confront them in their sin. That is the most loving thing to do. If you really want to hate somebody, Know that they are in error. Know that they are in danger spiritually. And know the truth, but say nothing. Know the truth, but don't confront them. If you really want to hate somebody, do that. It is not up to us how that truth is received. But it is up to us to communicate it. And so even though Paul regretted it, but just for a little while, After his emotion subsided, once his theology kicked in, and then he at least, he at least had the blessing of having a clear conscience. At that point, he didn't know how the letter would be received. Once Titus was gone, he didn't know. He had no idea how that letter would be received. But at least he had the blessing of having a clear conscience. And when you and I do that, when we confront someone, whether it's a a, friend or whether it's a family member and family members oftentimes they're the hardest ones right the hardest ones to speak the truth to because there's a lot at stake but at least when we do the right thing we will have the blessing of having a clear conscience we will have the blessing of knowing that we have done that which honors God and it's the most loving expression that we can give to that person How it's received is between that person and the Lord, but we have the blessing of having a clear conscience. Now let's look at verse 9 and 10. Paul writes, I now rejoice, not that you are made sorrowful in and of itself, and just a little supplied there, not that you are made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made to have godly sorrow so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The Bible speaks of two different kinds of sorrow over sin, a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. 
And dear friends, the difference between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow over sin is quite literally the difference between heaven and hell. A worldly sorrow produces death, eternal death. A godly sorrow produces repentance unto salvation. The difference between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow is the difference between a false professor of Christ and a genuine Christian. A godly sorrow is one of the true hallmarks of the truly regenerate child of God. So let's talk about these two kinds of sorrows. What are they? Paul says that this worldly sorrow leads to death. What is a worldly sorrow? A worldly sorrow is nothing more than a guilty conscience. A worldly sorrow is the kind of sorrow that says this, what would happen to me if my sin were exposed? What would be the consequences to me? And so we try to cover up our sin, not because we grieve over it, but because we don't want the consequences of it. What would happen to me if my employer knew how I was cutting corners? Or what would happen to me if I got caught in all of these lies? What would, what would happen to me if my spouse knew who, was, who I was talking to on the side? What would happen to me? What would be the consequences to me if people knew what I was looking at on the computer? That hit a little close to home. But if we could get away with it, you see, if nobody would know about what we're doing, if nobody would know about what we're looking at, if we could get away with it, we'd go right back to it. Because that's what we really want. Dear friends, that is a worldly sorrow. And a worldly sorrow leads to death. Eternal death. But there's another kind of sorrow over sin. And that is a godly sorrow. What is a godly sorrow over sin? A godly sorrow over sin is that sorrow which is vertically oriented. A godly sorrow over sin comes when we grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God. And we do not want to grieve Him. We do not want to grieve His person. God has been so good, so kind, so generous, so patient, so merciful to us that when we sin, it grieves us. It grieves us because we understand that our sin grieves Him. And we do not want to grieve Him. We do not want to grieve His person. A godly sorrow is the kind of sorrow that David had. Remember David, we read the text this morning in our, in our reading. When David had committed these horrific sins, he committed adultery. And then he committed murder to cover up his adultery. And then Nathan came up to him. And Nathan did what a true friend should do. Nathan did what the apostle Paul did for the Corinthians. Nathan came up to King David and he said, you are the man, you are the man. And God used that to break David. God used that to shatter David. And David cried out in Psalm chapter 51, he said, wash me thoroughly 
from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone, O Yahweh, have I sinned. Against you and you alone have I sinned. And I've done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. In other words, David said, I have no excuse. I'm undone. Against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. This is the cry of a heart that is full of godly sorrow. Dear friends, as Christians, it is not that you and I do not sin. It is not that you and I cannot sin. We absolutely can. And as Christians, we do commit sin. In fact, 1 John 1, 9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? That's a well-known verse. Many of us, probably most of us in here in this room know that verse. That verse is most often used as an evangelistic passage. But that's not really primarily an evangelistic text. Paul wrote that to a church. Did I say Paul? John wrote that to a church. He wrote that to a body of believers. So that forgiveness in 1 John 1, 9 is not a judicial forgiveness in the sense of being judicially forgiven so that we no longer feel eternity in hell. That's a relational forgiveness that is in view there. So as Christians, you and I can and do sin. But here's the difference, dear friends. As a Christian, if you and I are Christians, if we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God as Christians... We stumble into sin, but we don't swim in it. We don't relish sin. We don't look for opportunities to sin. We don't plan out our sin. We don't enjoy our sin. As Christians, when we sin, it grieves us. It should grieve us that we sin. A lost person can sin and enjoy it, but not if you're a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. When you sin, when I sin as Christians, it grieves us. It grieves us that we sin. And this is truly one of the defining differences between a false professor in Christ and a true child of God. Does your sin grieve you? When you sin, does it grieve you? Again, this is not sinless perfection, but when you sin, does it grieve you that you sin? And do you have this desire, this yearning in your heart to make it right with God? This is a godly sorrow. Paul says that a godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. Paul says, so that you would not suffer loss in anything through us. Would not suffer loss. What does Paul mean by this? Would not suffer loss. By their sin, the Corinthians had severed that relationship that they had with the Apostle Paul. By being complicit in the sin of these false teachers, false apostles, going along with it, rebuking Paul when he finally did get to Corinth, that relationship with Paul had been broken. And Paul did not want them to suffer that loss. Can you imagine? I mean, being a part of a church that was begun by the Apostle Paul... And having Paul as your pastor, at least for a year and a half, 
and having that relationship with the Apostle Paul. But their sin had done what? It had broken that relationship. It had strained that relationship to the point of of breaking. So this letter of rebuke, please understand, dear ones, this letter of rebuke that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, this is not a reflection in any way that the Apostle Paul had not forgiven them. He had forgiven them in his heart. He had forgiven them for their sin. But what was, in, what was needed was reconciliation. Reconciliation of that relationship. When two Christians, two or more Christians or whatever, find themselves at odds with one another because of sin, because of sin on the part of one of those believers, unrepentant sin, the one who has been sinned against is obligated to forgive the sinning believer regardless of whether or not that person ever repents. We are obligated to forgive that person. So you can have forgiveness and should have forgiveness. You can have forgiveness without reconciliation. Reconciliation happens when the person who is in sin repents. That's what reconciliation is. So you can have forgiveness without reconciliation. But you cannot have reconciliation without forgiveness. Does that make sense? And the Apostle Paul did not want the Corinthians to suffer loss. Suffer loss through that relationship that they had with him. Look at verse 11. Paul says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. And then he goes into this litany of of superlatives. And then he says, he says, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 11 is the most detailed account we have in all of scripture of what real biblical repentance looks like. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 11. Paul gives us here seven descriptors of what true biblical repentance looks like. Let's look at these in turn. Paul says, what earnestness, what earnestness. The Corinthians were earnest for what? They were earnest, they were eager for righteousness. Before they had been indifferent towards the Apostle Paul, now they wanted to be restored to the Apostle Paul. Before they were indifferent towards their sin, Now they were eager for a restoration with their relationship with Paul and of God. They wanted that relationship restored. They wanted that reconciliation. What earnestness, Paul says. An earnestness to have those relationships restored. And then Paul says, what vindication of yourselves. Vindication. The word here in the Greek is the word apologian. And it means literally a speech in defense. It's the same word from which we get our word apologetics, a speech of defense. Now, that does not mean that the Corinthians were trying to defend themselves. Not at all. Actually, the opposite of that. The Corinthians had a strong desire to clear their name, to clear their name and to distance themselves from their own sin. 
That's what Paul meant, the vindication of themselves. The Corinthians wanted to vindicate themselves, not defend themselves. They wanted to vindicate themselves, whereas before they had been known for their sin. Now they wanted to be known for their repentance. That's what they wanted to be known for. What vindication of yourselves. And then they, Paul says, what indignation. What indignation. Agonictation in the Greek. This is a strong opposition, a displeasure, an anger. The Corinthians hated their sin. They were angry at their sin. They hated the fact that their sin had brought heartache to the Apostle Paul, and they hated that they had sinned against God. If you will, I want to camp out here just for a moment. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 4. Bring your attention to this verse, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. If you don't know the, the address off the top of your head, undoubtedly you'll, undoubtedly you'll know the verse. It's a familiar verse. Ephesians 4, verse 26. Paul says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. A familiar verse, right? Uh, the way we have most often heard this verse taught is something like this. If you and your wife get in a, or you and your husband, whatever, you and your spouse get in a little argument, a little tiff, you have a little spat, um, you get crossways with one another, work it out, kiss and make up before you go to bed. Okay. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. That's the way we've most often heard this verse taught, right? And I won't argue that that's good marital advice. That's pretty good marital advice. I would give a thumbs up to that. But I would submit to you that I don't think that that's what this verse is talking about. Let's break this down a little bit more. Paul says, be angry. Now, when you look at this in the Greek, this be angry, it's actually in the imperative voice. Now, I know that that just warms your heart and blesses your soul. But the imperative voice, what that means is, is that this is actually a command. It's a command. So this isn't just saying, okay, you know, if you get angry, it happens. You know, we live in a fallen world and, and people get angry and, you know, it's just going to happen from time to time. No, this is actually a command. It says, be angry. And then in your Bibles, you might notice that the word yet, it says be angry and yet do not sin. That word yet should be italicized in your Bible because it's, it's not actually in the original text. It's just supplied by the translators. So it literally says be angry. It's a command. Be angry. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So whatever this anger is, it cannot be an inherently sinful anger. Right? Because if it was inherently, an inherently sinful anger, there would not be an imperative, a command to actually do it. Obviously, the Bible would not command us to do something that is in and of itself sinful. So whatever this anger is, it cannot be an inherently sinful anger. So if it's not an inherently sinful anger, why does it matter if the sun goes down on it? Let the sun go down on it. If it's not sinful... Let it come up again the next morning, go down again the next day, if it's not a sinful anger. So what's going on here? I would submit to you that the object of our anger in Ephesians 4.26 
It's not our spouse. It's not your husband. It's not your wife. It's not the dogs. It's not the kids. The object of this anger in Ephesians 4.26 is, in and of itself, sin. Be angry at what? At your sin. Be angry at your sin. Do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And when we hear that phrase, don't let the sun go down on your anger, what Old Testament story does that kind of bring up uh, images of in our minds? Joshua's long day, right? You know, as long as the sun was not moving, then the Israelites were victorious against the Amalekites. They gained victory. Be angry at your sin. Stay angry at your sin. Don't let the sun go down on that anger. In other words, be angry, stay angry at your sin. Don't let the sun, don't you dare let the sun go down on that anger. Be angry at your sin, stay angry at your sin. There are two primary words in the Greek for anger. One is orge and the other is thumos. Orge refers to a settled disposition of anger. Thumos is an explosive outburst of anger. Okay? Let me give you an illustration. Mount St. Helens. Some of you folks with a little bit of gray hair in your head, you know, you remember Mount St. Helens, right? It erupted, I think it was on March the 27th, 1980. I know it was 1980. I can remember seeing this when I was a little boy. But um, so... Mount St. Helens, you've, underneath this mountain, you've, underneath the volcano, you've got this massive pool of lava, right, that's just there. It's just always there. It's boiling, roiling, this massive pool of lava. That's Orge. Thumas is what happened on March the 27th, 1980, when it blew its top. That's Thumas. So which word do you think the Apostle Paul used here in Ephesians 4, 26? Orge or Thumas? Orge, this settled disposition of anger. Be angry at your sin. Stay angry at your sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And for context, look up just a verse. Paul says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Speak truth. Lay aside falsehood. What is falsehood? Sin. Lay aside the sin of falsehood. Lay aside that sin of lying. Be angry at your sin. Do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on that anger. And verse 27 for me cinched it. And do not give the devil an opportunity. When does the devil have an opportunity in our lives? When we're not at war with our sin. That's when he has an opportunity in our lives. When we become complacent about our sin. I'm going to read to you a quotation from the great Puritan preacher Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson, in his book, The Mischief of Sin, says this If sin brings us low, let us labor to bring our sins low. Let all our spite, let all our anger be its sin. Let us pursue it with a holy malice. Sin will insinuate itself and plead for a reprieve. 
but show it no mercy. Show it no mercy. Be angry at your sin. Stay angry at your sin. This is one of the this is one of the characteristics of the child of God is that we are at war with our sin. Romans 8:13 says, "Put to death the deeds of the body." The deeds of the flesh, put it to death, be at war with your sin. Then Paul says, "What fear? What fear? Fear of what? Fear of God? Fear of God?" Dear friends, God is kind, he is gentle, he is loving to be sure, but not in an unqualified sense. God is also holy and he hates sin. And a reverential, all-filled fear of God is good. That is a good thing. We should have a fear of God. Now, as Christians, you and I do not need to fear the wrath of God in an eschatological sense, because God's wrath has been satisfied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You and I, as believers, we do not need to fear the wrath of God. But we should still have a reverential fear, a reverential awe of who God is, because he is thrice holy. And so many churches... They're really goat farms, but so many churches today, they have this casual attitude towards God. I'm so glad that is not the case here. But so many of these goat farms out there, they treat Jesus like he's their homeboy. And they seem to have no reverence for God, no fear of God. I have a tremendous reverential fear of God. It terrifies me every single time I take a pulpit. It terrifies me because I know that one day I will stand before the risen Lord Jesus Christ with eyes of flaming fire and feet of burnished bronze, and I know that one day I'll have to give an account. For what he has given me, I will have to give an account for how I've handled his word. I do not fear his wrath. But I do fear, I have that reverential fear of God. And all of us should as believers. What fear? This reverential fear of God. And then Paul says, what longing, what longing you have. The Corinthians long to have their relationship with the apostle Paul restored. They long for that fellowship with Paul. They long for that restoration of the fellowship that they had with Christ. They, they longed to have that relationship restored. A love for the brethren. One of the tremendous blessings that has been mine is by God's grace, I, God has allowed me to preach all around the world. I've been in almost every state, I think 46. I've been in about 30 different countries. And do you know one of the tremendous blessings that's been mine is it doesn't matter where in the world I am. It doesn't matter what country I'm in. It doesn't matter what culture I'm in. It doesn't matter how much they have or how little they have, how poor they may be. It doesn't matter what language is spoken. And you know what else doesn't matter? 
doesn't matter how much or how little melanin we may have in our skin. When I am with like-minded believers in Christ, there is an instant love there. There's an instant bond, an instant fellowship. I can go and meet a like-minded believer in Christ, a brother or sister in Christ somewhere halfway around the world, never met them before in my life, but when we're like-minded, there's just this, it's that bond. This too is the working of the Holy Spirit. He gives us a love for the brethren. We long to have that fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the Corinthians longed to have that relationship with the Apostle Paul restored. And then Paul says, what zeal, what zeal. Zeal is the confluence of two extremely strong emotions. Two extremely strong realities. When love and hate come together, you get zeal. When love and hate come together, you get zeal. Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is what Jesus quoted when he was cleansing the temple. Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house has consumed me. As Christians, we should love what God loves, and we should hate what God hates. Sometimes I'm asked, do you hate false teachers? No. No, I don't hate false teachers, but I do hate what they do. I hate what they teach because they bring reproach upon the name of Christ. The reproaches of you have fallen on me. As Christians, we should love what God loves and hate what God hates. Psalm 119, verse 104. The psalmist writes, is this me? The psalmist writes, from your precepts, I get perception. I get understanding. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. I hate false doctrine. Why? Because God hates it. I hate Roman Catholicism. I love Roman Catholics, but I hate Roman Catholicism. Because it keeps people in spiritual bondage. We should love what God loves and hate what God hates. We should love the truth. We should hate error. What zeal. And then Paul says, what avenging of wrong. What avenging of wrong. The Corinthians desired to avenge themselves. To, in other words, to make restitution for their own sin. A a truly repentant person, dear ones, has no interest in protecting himself or protecting herself. Have you ever heard someone say, come up to you, maybe someone who has done something against you or insulted you or whatever to you, wronged you in some way, and that person has said, okay, I'm, I'm sorry I did this, but here's why I did it. If you ever hear that, I'm sorry I did such and such, but... Here's why I did it. Whatever follows the but negates the I'm sorry. If a person is truly sorry, there are no buts. There are no excuses. 
A truly repentant person just wants to make it right. I'm sorry, I have no excuse. And that person wants to make it right. No excuses, no excuses. In the last uh, two or three years, some of the big names in the word faith movement, the prosperity gospel have come out and supposedly repented. Some of you may have seen this. Benny Hinn came out and he said that he was wrong in some of what he has been teaching. And he said, I was wrong for teaching people to give a thousand dollars and God will heal them of cancer or whatever. He, He said, I was wrong and I repent. Made big news. Benny Hinn repents. Todd White, about a year later, maybe a year, you know, a year later than that, Todd White came out and he said, uh, he said, I've been teaching some things that are wrong and, you know, I repent. Joyce Meyer did the same thing. She came out. I repent. Creflo Dollar even. Here in Atlanta, y'all know Creflo. Creflo Dollar came out. I repent. You know, everything that I used to teach on tithing, you know, give me money and God will bless you. I, he said, I, I repent. I was wrong. Big news. They repented. No, they didn't repent. They didn't repent for a couple of reasons. One, because they're still teaching the same thing they were teaching before. Benny Hinn is still teaching a give-to-get theology. In fact, I defy you to watch one episode of Benny Hinn's television program, one thing that he puts up on YouTube where he doesn't ask you for money and tell you if, God will, if you give him money, God will bless you. The only thing that he's changed is he no longer puts a $1,000 specific amount to your giving. He's still teaching the same thing. Todd White, still teaching the same thing. Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, they're still teaching the same thing. They haven't repented. So that's one way you know they haven't repented. Here's the other way you know they haven't repented. Because if they were truly repentant, if they were truly repentant with a godly sorrow, here's what they would do. They would come out and they would say, I've been lying to you. I've been deceiving you. All the people that I've claimed were healed up on my platform at my miracle crusades, they weren't healed. And I knew it. I've been deceiving you. I've been lying to you. All of the prophecies that I've been giving you, false prophecies. All the times that I've told you God has been speaking to me, I was lying. God hasn't been talking to me. I've been exploiting the poor, the sick, the desperate, and the widows for my own personal financial gain. I've been doing this for decades. And I have no excuse. I was wrong, and I now realize that I am biblically unqualified to be in ministry. And so I'm shutting it down. Everything the ministry owns, every building, every chair, every television camera, every light, I'm selling it. And I'm going to give all of the money to doctrinally sound churches, doctrinally sound ministries. I realize I'm no longer qualified to be in the pulpit, so I'm going to find a good doctrinally sound church, and I'm not going to be behind the pulpit. I'm going to be in the front of the pulpit, and I'm going to sit in that pew, and I'm going to learn. That would be repentance. And anything less than that makes a mockery of repentance. Dear friends, real repentance bears real fruit, real tangible fruit. Real repentance is the kind of repentance that Zacchaeus demonstrated. 
Remember when Jesus confronted him? And Zacchaeus says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. That's repentance. Real repentance bears real fruit. This is what repentance looks like. Do you have a godly sorrow over your sin? Do you grieve over your sin? Do you have a love for the Lord? Do you have a love for his truth? Do you try to make excuses of of your sin or do you just own it? All of these are marks of genuine repentance. You go to war against your flesh. If you're not certain of where you are in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to get real honest before God. Cry out to him. And if you will come to Christ in a true godly sorrow over your sin, he will save you. He will save you. Jesus Christ has made the only way for us to be forgiven. The God-man laid down his life on the cross. His life was not taken, he gave it. And on the cross, this perfect person offered his perfect life as a perfect sacrifice to perfectly satisfy the perfect wrath of God. Three days later, bodily raised from the dead, proving himself to be who he said he was, God in human flesh. And if you'll come to Christ, lay your works down, they will profit you nothing. But if you will come to Christ empty-handed, cry out to him, that godly sorrow, he will save you. You'll pass from death to life. Old things passed away, behold, all things will be made new and there will now therefore be no condemnation that you ever need to fear. Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. He will save you, and he will be your reward for all of eternity. That is the good news of the gospel. Let's close in a word of prayer.